passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like to just begin with these thoughts. You know, a lot of times we take things for granted. Like many of us took our health for granted until we ended up with COVID. And then all of a sudden, we really wish we were healthy again. Oftentimes we take our family for granted until we meet people who don't have a family or people who don't have loving and caring parents. Then we realize how good we have it when we have a, a good family. Oftentimes we take our country for granted and the freedoms we have in our country until all of a sudden some of those freedoms are taken away or you're an Olympic athlete in the Beijing Olympic Village and you realize you don't have a lot of freedoms there. You're thankful for the freedoms you have in your country. One thing, quite honestly, that we take for granted as Christians is the Word of God. Imagine what it would be like in your life if the Bible was completely and utterly taken away. You didn't know uh, about God's plans, didn't know about God's love, didn't know about God's purpose for you. Imagine if that was all gone and God's Word was just gone. The Old Testament prophet Amos talks about a time like that around the year 800 BC where there was a famine, not a famine for food, but a famine of the word of the Lord. This is what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So Amos says in the year of 800 BC that there'll come a time where people do not have God's word. They do not hear God's word and they're going to be desperate for the word of the Lord. Now, for them, it's a little different than us. When we think about God's word, we think about God's book. We think about the Bible. That's God's word to us, the Old and the New Testament. But remember, Amos was writing around the year 800 B.C. He didn't have the Bible. And what God's, uh, they, at least they had a portion of it, but they certainly didn't have all of it like we do. What God would do at that time is his words would come through his prophets, God would speak to his prophets and his prophets would come to his people and they would say, thus saith the Lord. In fact, most of your New Testament or your Old Testament is literally prophets' words from God. You see, thus saith the Lord over, it's around 3,000 times, I believe, 2,600, 3,000 times in the Old Testament. And Amos says there's going to be a famine of that. Now as we get back into 1 Samuel and we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Remember what we've learned. Samuel was a, a young boy prayed for by his mother. God provided that he would be conceived. And then around the, year, the age of three or four, he was dropped off in the temple to be raised by the priests, very intentionally so by his mother. But we learned that the temple and the priests there were not the best of guys. We saw that last week. Eli, who would be sort of the high priest in that day, he's not the most 
on top of things. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, last week we saw the text describes them as worthless men. They are corrupt men. Not the best place for young Samuel to grow up. Now, we also find that at that time, there was something called a famine. A famine of the word of the Lord. God's word was rare in those days. God was not speaking through his prophets. He was not speaking through his priests because of the corruption of those priests. It was a very spiritually lifeless time. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Stand out of reverence for God's word. And if you have a copy of God's word, follow along with your eyes and your copy of the text. Otherwise, just follow along as you listen, as I read the entire third chapter. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Then the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Then Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything. 
and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Then, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. That ends the reading of the scripture. You can be seated. Now these verses divide themselves up into three pieces. There is the first part, which is the calling of Samuel. And then you'll see it goes on to the message that was given to Samuel. And lastly, we'll see that Samuel is, after that, becomes established as a prophet of the Lord. So let's start at the top and work our way through these verses. The first thing is God revealed himself to Samuel. Starts in the first three verses. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent I, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. When we read these opening verses, it sounds simply like what is happening here is the scene is being set is just random details. But I want you to understand, when you're reading Scripture and you find details, they are not put there for random purposes. They are put there for specific purposes. When the Holy Spirit inspires the author to include something, every detail has a point to it. Let me show you what I mean. If you're following along in your outlines, the first thing is this. The imagery of these verses carries meaning. For instance, Eli's physical condition was a picture of the spiritual condition of the people and of himself. It starts by saying the word of God was rare in those days, comma, there was no vision, no frequent vision, i.e. from the Lord. And then it goes on to immediately start describing Eli. He was old, and Eli could not see. His eyesight had grown dim. Now, obviously, that's because he was old. And as you get old, you can't see as well. But the physical condition of his eyes is a mirror, is an image of the spiritual condition of his life and of God's people. He could not see physically well anymore. He could not see spiritually well anymore. He did not have good spiritual vision, and neither did the people of God at that time, because he is the high priest guy. He's supposed to be delivering God's words to God's people. He's not seeing those things anymore. Something else. Eli lying outside of the tabernacle and not getting out of bed is meant to contrast with Samuel sleeping next to the ark and energetically responding to God's voice. It says here that Eli is lying in his own place. Where is his own place? I have no idea. Nobody knows. But we do know where young Samuel is lying. It says next to the ark of the Lord. 
Which of these two men is closer to God at this point? Samuel, physically sleeping near the ark of the Lord, where this other guy, Eli, isn't. When Samuel hears this voice calling his name, he gets up, he energetically runs, and he does something about it. Eli, when he hears what's happening, does he get out of bed? Nope. He just pulls the covers right back over himself and stays in bed. In fact, I think it's interesting. This is what Eli has been pictured so far as doing in this book. All we've seen him in these chapters are he sits, he speaks, he hears, and he lies down. Not much life in this guy. Not much going on. Where Samuel is constantly active, constantly moving around and responding to things. Now, if you think about the situation here, you can see there's a real crisis involved. Eli is pretty much of an old, tired, inept leader. And no vision anymore, physically and spiritually. Who's next in line? Hophni and Phinehas when he dies, which you already know about these guys from the last chapter. They are worthless men, not the guys you want to see in charge. So we have a real crisis on our hand. Something else about this that's going on. It says about the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. It was a picture of the spiritual condition of the nation. The lamp, if you look in the tabernacle, there was a a menorah. It's a seven candle piece menorah. I was looking for a great one to give you on the graphics and I wasn't able to find one at the last minute so I'll just try and have you use your imagination. It's a lamp that goes up in the center and then it has three branches that go up like this on the side. So it's a total of seven flames on the top and they would fill that with oil and then that would burn throughout the night and they were to keep that lit in the tabernacle every night. It would burn out in the morning. In fact, I'll show you where this is found in Exodus. You go to Exodus 27. It says, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting, outside of the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So this lamp is to burn. It burns all the time. But if you have ever used an oil lamp before, as the oil gets low and it goes to the end, what happens to the flame? It sort of gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the, the point is that when this whole thing happens, it's in the early morning hours. The size of the flame has greatly diminished. But I think there's a picture between the spiritual condition of the nation and that lamp. Just as the flame is low, but it hasn't quite gone out yet, the spiritual condition of the nation and of the leaders is very low, but it hasn't quite gone out yet. Let's continue in the text in verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord's word was rare in those days, is how this all began. 
but here what was rare in those days was actually beginning to happen to Samuel. At least on that occasion, when God's word came, it apparently came in a literal, audible voice that Samuel heard. Now, some of you may say, could only Samuel hear this voice or could everyone hear this voice? I don't know. It could have been just Samuel. It could have been everyone. Well, you say, well, why didn't Eli hear this voice? We already know his place where he slept was actually a little further away, not right next to where Samuel was. And my guess is if Eli's eyesight was really bad, his hearing was probably also really bad. So if God, um, if God did speak to, his, to Samuel audibly, it makes sense as to why he responded very quickly by saying, here I am, and then running to Eli. Now, this is a guess. I don't know if this is true. But I suspect Eli probably called for Samuel in the middle of the night other times. You know, an old man, 80 some odd years old at this point, probably needs some help at that time. And who would he call? Young Samuel to come and help him. So this is why, I th this is me. I think that's what's going on here. But I don't know if that's true. Now let me share a few thoughts that ran across my head as I was looking at this. Clearly, the word of God was rare, it says, in those times. And the spiritual health of the people was not good in those times. It was low. And that reminds me of a principle that really is timeless, right, from this text that applies to us. And I have it in your outlines. The health of a church is determined by the presence of God's word in the church. In Samuel's day, there was no shortage of religion, but there was a shortage of God's word. When God withdrew his word from the people, the spiritual health of the people suffered. If God withdraws his word from a church, withdraws his word from a denomination, and you find pastors that are not putting their finger in the text, people who are not faithfully preaching the text, and they're giving health and wealth gospel things, they're doing critical theories, they're doing prosperity theology, they're not being faithful to God's word, they may draw a crowd, but the spiritual health of the people will be low. The spiritual health of the people is always determined and created by God's word. As we're going to see at the very end, God's word is living. God's word is active. God uses his word to create spiritual life. He uses his word to sustain spiritual life. This is why we at Crosswinds insist that we keep our finger in the text. There is nothing better that I can do for you or that anyone can do for you other than to keep your finger in God's word. He uses it to strengthen and encourage you. Let's continue in the text, verses 6 and 7. The Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Let me just focus in on the last part. It says Samuel did not let know, did not yet know the Lord. Sounds like, wait a minute, are you telling me that Samuel is not a believer? 
he doesn't have a relationship with God at all. But wasn't it just in the last chapter that we saw that Samuel grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man? What is going on here? Samuel is a believer, but Samuel, up to this point in his life, has never had God speak to him audibly and directly like he does here. So this is your fill in the blank. Samuel did not know the Lord. Does not mean he was an unbeliever. It means up to that point, God had not spoken directly to him. What we have happening is Samuel is changing sort of his description, not intentionally on his part, but God is changing it. Samuel, we saw in previous weeks, has been a priest. He's a little tiny priest running around age four, five, six, up to his 11, 12, running around with a linen ephod acting like a priest. And he's learning like a priest. But at this point, God is making him not just a priest, but he's a prophet. A prophet is the one who hears the words of God and then shares those words of God with the people of God. This has never happened to Samuel before this. This is his first time when he's actually hearing from God directly. And from this point out, he'll be able to say, thus saith the Lord, because God told me what to say. Then in verse 8, And the Lord called again, called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Now the light's starting to go on with Eli. I think I know what's happening, he says. Then in verse 9, Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, Speak, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called it as as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Now this is the fourth time that God has called Samuel and spoken to Samuel. But here it's interesting because in the other three times, we just know that Samuel heard his name spoken. But at this time, there's something different. It says the Lord came and the Lord stood. Apparently, maybe this happened the other times as well, God put himself there physically in Eli or Samuel's presence. Remember, before when we started, the word of the Lord was not often heard, and there was no vision of the Lord. Now God's word is being heard. It's calling Samuel's name. And the Lord came and stood. Apparently, there is some kind of vision of the Lord. He is literally being able to see the Lord. I'll tell you this just for the fun of it. When you study this in in academic books, some of the critical scholars will say, oh, all that's happening is Samuel is having a dream. No, he's not. When it says the Lord came and stood, that is not a dream. That is, it's actually happening. This is a physical reality. So we've seen how God here has first called Samuel. This is the first time he's spoken to Samuel. Now let's look at the message itself. God spoke his words through Samuel. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. What he's about to tell Samuel is actually nothing new. 
If you were here with us last week, you remember when the man of God, the prophet, came and gave a message to Eli that his family would be destroyed because his sons were despising God's sacrifices. He knew about it but did nothing to stop them. This is the same message given again a number of years later, except this time it's given to Samuel. Samuel is the new prophet of God. Incidentally, it says this is going to be such a startling message, it'll make the ears of everyone tingle. And you say, well, what does that mean? It's news that is so shocking that it's hard to hear. Like this past week, when you and I heard about a young woman being gunned down with a 9mm in the Grape Tea parking lot, that's hard to hear. And I kept thinking to myself, imagine what it was like for her parents when the police officers showed up at their home to tell them what happened to their daughter. That'll make your ears tingle. That's a message that's hard to hear. And this is what God is saying this message is going to be like. So here's the message. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now, what was this iniquity? Let me remind you. Some of you weren't here last week. A couple things. We know that um, when people were, had taken some of their offering, there's an offering called the fellowship offering or the peace offering where you actually eat some of the offering in God's house, sort of like a church meal. Uh, they'd be cooking it in their kitchen and on their stove and Eli's would have his servants go over with a big fork, remember, and say, oh, that's a perfect steak. I'll take it. The priest will eat it. No dinner for you. <laughs> it's pretty gnarly. And they had gotten so bold that they weren't just stealing people's food from the fellowship offering or the peace offering, what they were doing was they were also going to the um, offerings that were to be offered to God, and they were taking the meat right off of that. In particular, they were taking the fat portions. When Leviticus said, all the fat is the Lord's, that's exclusively his on the altar, and they're like, hey, fat adds flavor. I like it. I'm going to take it. Stealing not just from people, but stealing from God. And then as we saw last week, they were also sleeping with a young woman who worked in the temple. On top of that, these guys are married men, as we're going to see in the next chapter. So God's like, you guys are done. With, I'm done with you. Eli, you knew all about this, but you didn't do anything to stop your kids. And we learned this last week, that parents, to some degree, bear responsibility for the choices and the actions of their children. Now, especially when a child is under a, a parent's authority, like even these adult children were still under Eli's authority, and he had a responsibility to stop them and to turn them from what they were doing. But he did absolutely nothing. This is his fatal flaw. And I started thinking about this. There's an interesting contrast here between Hophni and Phinehas and their father. The Bible describes two types of sin. There's sin of commission and there's sin of omission. Typically, we only think about the sin of commission category. 
Hophni and Phineas, they chose to go out of their way and do what was wrong. Eli, he is guilty of sins of omission. He knew what was happening, but he failed to do what was right. He failed to get up and take the initiative and stop his sons. He closed his eyes. I don't know if he was just cowardly, he was just lazy, but he is responsible for not taking action. James talks about this. It says in James chapter 4, verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and yet fails to do it, for him it is sin. So Eli, I don't know if he's just lazy, if he doesn't like confrontation, I don't know what it is, but he does not step in. Now let me talk to you if you are in a position of leadership, because you know what this is like. If you are in a position of leadership and there's people that are under you and they're doing things that are not, not right, they're doing things that are wrong, and sometimes it's real easy to sort of like close the eyes to that, just sort of ignore that, Hopefully everything works out with that. But at the end of the day, sometimes that ends up being a sin of omission. Failing to step in and make corrective conversations. And oftentimes we fail to do that because those are not easy. That is hard work. Sometimes if you're a parent, you have the same challenge with your children. You see your children making choices and you start battling back and forth in your mind. Should I say something to them about this or should I not? Should I say or should I not? If I bring this topic up, boy, is it going to be a big battle in the home. And then a little bit later on we say, I should have talked about that a lot earlier. That ends up being a sin of omission. We failed to do the right thing. We failed to take the initiative and step forward. Another example of that would Maybe, maybe you and somebody else who's a, who's a Christian in the body of believers, uh, you left a conversation and you didn't feel like it left right. You think it maybe left in a weird situation. You say, well, if they really had a problem, they'd probably call me and straighten it out. And the Holy Spirit keeps working on you. No, you need to take the initiative to call them and make sure you straighten it out. And you say, no, I don't need to do that. And you push it off, you push it off. That's a sin of omission. Because if the Holy Spirit is telling you to talk to somebody, you say, hey, did we leave that conversation off okay? Maybe I said the wrong thing. I just want to straighten that out. If the Holy Spirit is pushing you on that, we need to follow that and obey that. Let's continue in the text in verse 14. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Man, that's a scary thing. This is the unforgivable sin. And what is it? Eli's sons and Eli despise the very way for them to be forgiven. The sacrificial system, the offerings that God had given them. They blew it off. And here is where it gets application for us. Despising the very way God made to forgive our sins is a dead-end road. In Samuel's day, that was the sacrificial system. In our day, that is Jesus. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 10? Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Like Eli, we sin all the time. But the good news is we can run to Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus is eager to forgive us of our sin. But if you despise Jesus, you make little of Jesus, you don't really care about Jesus, what hope is there besides Jesus? Folks, there is no plan B. Sometimes people wonder, well, what about Muslims out there? Or what about Hindus? Or what about Buddhists? Will any of those guys be in heaven? Absolutely not. And that's not because I'm being hurtful. That's all because I'm being truthful. If there was any other way for us to be forgiven of our sin, God would have done it. The only way to be forgiven of our sin and to be made right with God is by Jesus Christ dying in our place and trusting him to save us. This is why there is only one way to be right with God. Anybody else in all the religions out there, if they despise Jesus, they turn away from Jesus, there is no plan B. There is just Jesus. It continues in verse 15. <coughs> Samuel lay until morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. I think that's pretty obvious at this point. I would be if I was too. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Now do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems best. I want to focus in on the very last part of this section. Eli's response. He just simply says, well, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems best. Now, in my Bible, years ago, I wrote down a note next to that verse. This verse irritates me. And every time I read it and reread it, it really irritates me. Eli just sort of like, well, okay, God's going to do what God's going to do. He's going to destroy me. He's going to destroy my children. going to destroy my family line. I'm like, Eli, this is showing me there's a character problem. He is a very passive man. He takes no initiative. He doesn't go out of his way to change anything. He knew about this in chapter 2, right? Here we are in chapter 3, and has he done anything during that period of time to curb his sons? Nope. He's let it go on for years and years. Takes absolutely no initiative to make a change. This is what totally really irritates me here. Eli was a passive man. He failed to lead his family, and he failed to lead his nation. And then I began reflecting. How much am I like Eli? 
How much am I a passive man? That the guilt in my life may not be sins of commission where I actually go out of my way to do things wrong, but they're sins of omission where I fail to take the initiative to do things right. I fail to take the initiative to interject myself into a relationship and initiate corrective action. How about you? As you look at your life, do you find yourself falling to the same sins as Eli? Failing to take the initiative? Let me move a little further. Let's look at Samuel. Samuel needed courage to speak God's words because they were hard for Eli to hear. In a similar way, we need courage to speak God's word because sometimes for other people, they are hard to hear. The words that God had given Samuel to speak to Eli were about pain and and judgment upon his family. And remember, Eli has been like a foster father for Samuel all this time. Imagine a 16-year-old kid trying to tell an 80-some-odd-year-old man this kind of news and these kind of stories. took a lot of courage. And then I realized, you know, we're given a message from God to communicate to other people. And folks... Sometimes it's not easy for people to hear. It takes a lot of courage to speak. It's called the gospel message. The gospel message always has two parts to it. It's a bad news and a good news story. And we like to skip the bad news part. But the bad news is just honest. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We are addicted to sin. There is nothing we can do to free ourselves from our sin. There's nothing we can do to pay for our sin that we deserve the lake of fire. We deserve God's eternal wrath and punishment. That is not overdone. That is just fair. Every single one of us are in a completely hopeless position. But the good news is God loves you. He loves you so much. He sent his own son to die on the cross for you. His own son took an eternity of the wrath that you and I deserve to suffer, suffer, and he absorbed it all into himself. Suffered in time what you and I deserve for eternity in super intensity. That is what he did because he loves you to die for you. And he offers to save you if you will simply trust him and make him the king of your life. And he will save you completely. And the good news is he doesn't just save you, but you and I become the most exalted and blessed beings in the universe, the New Testament says, through Jesus. That's the good news. But here's my point. We like to tell people the good news of the story, but we often forget to tell people the bad news of the story. And unless we have courage to tell the bad news, then there's really no reason to trust in Jesus for the good news, is there? It's a hard message, but it's the message God's given us to say. Remember the gospel message but include the truth of God's just judgment, not just the good news of God's love through Jesus. Now we're under the third part. Samuel was recognized as a prophet. So we've seen Samuel was called as a prophet. Then he was given his very first message, which is probably his hardest message of all to Eli. Now he's recognized. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
So Samuel goes from a teenager to he becomes an adult. He grows. But when it says, let none of his words fall to the ground, that means every time God spoke to him and Samuel said, thus saith the Lord, those words proved to be 100% true and reliable because it was, that was proof that it was generally God speaking to him. Deuteronomy tells us this in Deuteronomy 18.22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You don't need to be afraid of him. But everything that Samuel spoke did come true. He was truly a prophet of the Lord. And it says, from all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Now you wonder why Dan to Beersheba is included. Give you a little geography. Dan is the northernmost city in Israel. Beersheba is the southernmost city in Israel. So it's the entire nation. Everyone realized that now Samuel wasn't just a priest. He was actually a prophet who would speak God's words. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. So 1 Samuel chapter 3 begins. The word of the Lord is rare. God, the health of God's people is poor. 1 Samuel chapter 3 ends. The word of the Lord is now coming to God's people. It's coming through Samuel. And God's people are experiencing spiritual health and experiencing life. So here's the applications. God's answer to the leadership crisis of his people was not to raise up a powerful leader. Notice this. It was to raise up a man who would speak God's words to the people. Folks, the answer to the leadership crisis in our life, like where are we going? What's life about? How do I deal with my sin? The answer to those questions are in God's word. And the answer is through Jesus Christ. What we desperately need is God's word. This is the point here. God's people desperately need God's word because the word of God will create and sustain our spiritual life. Let me show you these things quickly. Peter says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is what converts people, and so they trust in Jesus. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word sustains spiritual life. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, makes wise the simple. Is your heart weary right now? God's word will revive it. Are you struggling trying to figure out wisdom? God's word gives it to you. I like the way Hebrews says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. God's words are not just words. They are literally alive. And he uses it to create spiritual life, not just in 1050 BC when God was speaking through Samuel, but he uses his words to create and sustain your relationship with God today as we keep our finger in the text.
Charles Spurgeon was a pastor and, and many years ago. And somebody asked him, how can you defend preaching from the Bible? He had a great answer. He says, I don't need to defend preaching from the Bible. The Bible is like a lion. All I need to do is let it out of its cage. It's alive. It'll defend itself. So true, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your words are alive and you use them to create spiritual life for your people. I thank you that as we studied um, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, how you raised Samuel up as a prophet to give God's people what they really needed, what they were so desperately famished for, hearing your word. May we be people here at Crossman's who keep our finger in the text, who've tried to faithfully preach the text, study the text, and read your word, because we know that your word is what will create and sustain spiritual life for us. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.